Welcome to Winston & Strong's Competition Corner Podcast, designed for businesses operating in the United States and elsewhere to better understand hot topics and antitrust law. I'm your host, Molly Donovan. I'm really excited about today's episode. My guest is Yukio Kaiju. Yukio is an attorney visiting Winston & Strong from the TMI Associates Law Firm in Japan. Yukio has his LLM from the University of California at Berkeley and has experience at both the U.S. FTC and the Japan Fair Trade Commission. At TMI Associates, Yukio's practice includes general corporate, M&A, cartels, monopolization, and other unfair trade practices, among other things. We are very pleased to have Yukio here at Winston & Strawn, and I'm equally pleased he's joining today's podcast. Since I have Yukio as my guest, I wanted to shift away from U.S. antitrust law, which I know is typically our prime focus, um, but I want to look instead at Yukio's view of hot topics in competition law in Japan. Yukio, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, first, since we're in the middle of the COVID epidemic here in New York, I just want to mention that we are recording remotely, and I'm telling you this because... Our sound quality may not be as good as it normally would be, um, but of course we are practicing social distancing. Um, aside from that and wishing all of our friends, colleagues, and other listeners well during these exceedingly challenging times, the rest of this podcast is going to be COVID-free for those who need a COVID break. So with that said, Yukio, um, let's get started by you telling us a little bit more about your background in legal practice in Japan. Sure. I joined TMI Associates in 2009. As you noted, my practice is focused on antitrust. For example, I represented a Japanese supplier in the international old parts cartel cases and handled the investigations as well as leniency process. I have also handled many merger reviews in various industries, including supermarkets, the food industry, and chemical industry. Between 2012 and 2014, I was seconded to the legal department of Toyota Motor Corporation in Aichi Prefecture in Japan, where I advised on antitrust matters, matters involving the Subcontractors Act, and contracts including joint development agreements and M&M matters. From 2016 to 2018, I joined the Japan Fair Trade Commission as a chief investigator and litigator. There, I worked on international cultural cases, unfair trade cases, and monopolization cases. Well, that sounds interesting. What else can you say about your time there at the JFTC? What exactly was your role? Uh, in 2015, there was an amendment to Japan's Anti-Monopoly Act, which required that the JFTC's orders would be subject to direct uh, review by the district court rather than going through administrative trial proceedings at the JFTC, which was how things proceeded before the amendment. The district court judge is not bound by the JFTC's findings of fact, so under the new system, the JFTC staff must approve the facts and their theory of harm in a way that is easy for the judge, who is not an antitrust expert, to understand. Mm -hmm. I handled the first unfair trade practice case that was brought to the district court after the amendment went into effect. As a litigator, it was my job to prove the related facts carefully by submitting evidence and documents. I discussed several issues with my JFTC colleagues, and sometimes I collected the related evidence and conducted investigations myself. 
eventually the JFTC won that case in the district court. Right. Okay. Um, let's get into today's topic. Um, since we don't have that much time um, in any given podcast episode, I want to get going. Um, so if you can, um, can you list the top three hot topics um, that you think are happening in Japanese competition law right now um, in April 2020? Sure. The first would be the amended guidelines and policies regarding merger review, which were issued by the JFTC last December. On the same day, the JFTC also issued new guidelines on abuse of a superior bargaining position in transactions between digital platform operators and consumers. So that's the second hot topic. And finally, the third hot topic is the recent amendment to the leniency program and the surcharge system, which was passed last year and will come into effect in 2020. Okay, that's a, that's a good list. So let's start with the first one you mentioned, the um, new merger review guidelines. Um, if you would just briefly explain what those guidelines cover and what they say. Sure. The amended merger guidelines focus primarily on business combinations in the digital market. Within the digital market, the precise market definition for evaluating a particular combination focuses on competition by means of quality as opposed to price. And the guidelines clarify considerations in defining the product market, for example, characteristics of content, quality, and user friendliness, as well as the geographic market, for example, a range within which a user can enjoy the service on the same terms and with the same quality. The guidelines also address the JFTC's views on competition analysis based on characteristics of digital services, looking at things like network effects and switching costs. Okay, something that comes to my mind is this idea of, um, they're called killer acquisitions in the digital marketplace. And I think that that subject is on the top of many enforcers' minds. Do the JFTC's new guidelines speak to that issue? Yeah, uh, I, I, as I understand it, the term killer acquisition refers to the idea that large companies could be intentionally acquiring startups to stop the target innovation and preempt future competition. The amended guidelines do address that issue. Let's imagine that company A acquires company B, a startup that is not engaged in the same business as company A, but does have material input goods, such as important data for businesses, and therefore would be expected to become a powerful competitor to company A. If this mm-hmm. acquisition eliminates the possibility for company B to enter the market, then the business combination will greatly affect competition. Such a transaction would likely be prohibited. But, of course, it's difficult to determine with certainty whether the transaction will harm competition because any pro-competitive effects of the combination should be considered carefully as well. Okay. Are there any high-profile or other interesting examples of how these new merger guidelines for digital platforms um, have actually been applied? Um, Not yet, but in November uh, 2019, Yahoo Japan operator Z Holdings Corp and Line Corp announced a planned merger. The integration of these companies, which both offer a wide array of Internet-based services, will be the first test case that we can watch to see how the JFTC actually applies the amended guidelines. 
In particular, it will be interesting to see how the relevant product and geographic markets are defined. Another important issue will be how to assess the influence of the merger on the market. Okay, let's switch now to the second hot topic you identified, the other set of guidelines for digital platforms announced in December 2019 relating to abuse of superior bargaining position. Um, for purposes of those guidelines, what counts as a digital platform? And it might be helpful if you could give us some examples. Sure. The guidelines define a digital platform operator. This refers to company that operates platforms online, such as internet shopping malls, online auctions, apps market, search services, content distribution services like ebook, book services, for example, booking.com, sharing economy platforms, for example, Airbnb, and social networking services. So generally, any company that provides customers consumers' online services and obtains consumers' personal information needs to be aware of these guidelines. All right, and what do the new guidelines say? The new guidelines are called guidelines concerning abuse of a superior bargaining position in transactions between digital platform operators and consumers. In the guidelines, the JFTC took this opportunity to clarify some examples of of potentially risky conduct for digital platform operators in order to improve predictability and provide transparency with respect to its enforcement priorities. The guidelines address conduct that the JFTC will investigate on a priority basis. This includes, for example, acquiring personal information without stating to consumers the purpose for which the information will be used and acquiring personal information against consumers' intention beyond the scope necessary to achieve the purpose of use. Well, the aim of the guidelines is to prevent digital platform operators from acquiring personal information in an unfair manner which disadvantages consumers and adversely affects competition. These concepts seem to focus on disparity in the quality and quantity of information and the negotiating power between consumers and digital platform operators. The GFTC is concerned about con causing competitive harm by abusing their superior bargaining positions to, for example, acquire personal information without stating the purpose of use to consumers. Um, we have to move now on to your third hot topic, um, the changes to the JFTC's leniency policy. When were those changes made, and broadly speaking, what do they cover? In June 2019, the JFTC enacted the amendment which changes both the leniency program and the surcharge system. Unlike the guidelines we just talked about, which was effective immediately, this amendment will probably come into effect in this fall. The key changes for the leniency program are in the cooperation credit and the number of applicants. First, there is more cooperation credit available for cooperating co companies that are not the first ones to apply for leniency. For example, under the previous system, the third-in-line company could only receive a 30% reduction in its fine for cooperating with the JFTC's investigation. The new system would allow a third-in company to get up to a 50% fine reduction. Specifically, mm -hmm. there is a range of 10% to 50% discount for third-in cooperators. 
So under the new system, cooperating with the CFTC investigation is even more important than before because they, there are greater benefits available. In addition, the amendment ab abolished the limitation on the number of lineage applicants. Under the previous system, only up to five companies could apply for leniency. And as for the search system, the period of calculating fine uh, only goes back three years under the previous system. The amendment, amended period of um, calculating fine is up to 10 years. So the surcharge will increase. It also increases available penalties for obstruction of justice. Do you think that the flexibility in determining cooperation credit and fine reductions will be beneficial overall to companies who do decide to seek leniency, or is it your mm -hmm. feeling that the JFTC is going to be harsh in exercising its new discretion? Mm -hmm. Well, these changes can certainly be beneficial for later cooperating companies, as it will now be possible to get a large, larger fine reduction. In April, the JFTC published uh, proposal guidelines about the factors for consideration and evaluation, such as whether or not the content of the report provided by a company, one, is detailed and concrete, two, includes all the relevant materials described in guidelines, contributing to re revealing the truth of the case, and three, is corroborated by materials submitted by the company. This would help provide some clarity for companies seeking leniency. And on, on a, a different subject, um, I understand that there is now an official policy of the JFTC as part of these changes to now respect the confidentiality of legal advice given to mm -hmm. companies by outside lawyers regarding cartel situations. And I understand that's an improvement over past policy. But my question is, um, I understand that materials like lawyer notes from interviews of employee witnesses still are not going to be protected. Is that true? And even if the notes were made by outside counsel, and what about notes made by U.S. counsel um, representing a company in Japan for purposes of protecting and defending that company in a global cartel situation? Mm -hmm, that's right, Molly. To make the new leniency program more effective and to protect the confidential legal advice, a new system similar to the protections for attorney-client privilege for confidential information in the U.S. was set forth. While this is not in the law, it will be policy, and it's only applicable in unreasonable restraint of trade cases, such as cartel cases. According to the JFTC's proposal guidelines, this seems to be to apply only to legal advice, so a note by attorney will not likely be protected under this policy. This policy is not applicable to the uh, in-house attorneys unless they independently engage in legal practice. On the other hand, the proposal guidelines says, with respect to international cartel related to an um, alleged violation case, documents stating the contents of confidential communications between the company and the foreign attorneys regarding foreign company foreign competition laws, excluding primary materials and fact-finding materials, will be protected. 
And in your experience, as as a practical matter, does the JFTC actually ask for these types of materials, like lawyer notes from interviews, or um, does do they generally respect privilege even without an official policy to do so? Um, it depends on the case. I've heard that in an international culture investigation case, when the JFTC investigated a company which had applied for leniency, then the JFTC respected the so-called privileged materials in the investigation process. But this is really done on a case-by-case basis. All right, I understand. Um, before we end, I want to ask you, um, on a more personal note, what brought you to Winston & Strawn? Um, what are you hoping to gain from this experience um, and this time that you'll be with us? Well, while I bring my experience in recent antitrust enforcement in Japan and also global enforcement trends from my time at both the U.S. and Japanese antitrust authorities, I'd like to learn more about the practice of antitrust matters in the U.S., including how to handle investigations and litigation here. All right. Well, um, I hope that you are able to um, learn that, and we are certainly learning very much from you, um, including today's podcast, which I think has been so informative for our listeners and a nice episode for me to do as well. So thanks very much, Yukio. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Molly. All right, and for our listeners, you can email me, molly, at nndonovan at winston.com if you have any questions about today's episode or if you have an idea for a future episode. Thank you so much for listening.